0: This festive season, make sure you stock up on Ring devices, which range from video doorbells to alarm and cameras. These easy-to-install smart home security products will give you peace of mind while you're away, as you can see, hear, and talk to visitors from anywhere. Ring's products are available at Takealot, Builders Warehouse, Incredible Connection, Vodacom, and Leroy Merlin. Because with Ring, you're always home. It happens in an instant. Before he can understand what's happening, the masked man is on her. She falls, he runs, and the awful truth of what the driver has just seen hits him. The knife, the blood, her screams. He rams his car into gear and gives chase. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht and you're listening to episode 140, The Murder of Sharmilin Davids. This episode is sponsored by We Filmed a Zoo on the Dreamstream platform. Ever wondered what goes on behind the scenes at Joburg Zoo? DreamStream has collaborated with Joburg Zoo Friends to create We Film the Zoo. This weekly show documents what's happening at the Johannesburg Zoo. The show was created to help raise funds for the important projects the zoo regularly undertakes. The family-friendly content is a perfect way to keep the kids occupied while helping to contribute to the well-being of the animals. We Film the Zoo is just one of the shows exclusively produced for the DreamStream platform to help raise funds for various causes. The DreamStream app is available on Android. iPhone users can access it via their mobile-friendly site. You can sign up for a free one-month trial without entering any card details up front. It's super easy to access we Film zoo along with the other content available on the DreamStream platform. A short how to video is available on their YouTube channel, dream.stream.za, or engage with them via their website, dreamstream.co.za. To see promos of We Film the Zoo, as well as some of the other awesome content, visit and follow Dreamstream's social media platforms on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube. A huge thank you to We Film the Zoo and Dreamstream for their support of True Crime South Africa. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming, and for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You? Yes, you. Are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal. Follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. A huge thank you goes out to Naniwe Tabede, Hazel, Elizabeth Cole, and Janice Kay for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout-out on the pod, and other exclusive contents including Q&As with me as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please. And thank you. Keba. Unfortunately, today's case is one that is becoming all too frequently reported on murder by an intimate partner to end a marriage or relationship when the murderer, for whatever reason, doesn't just want to divorce or break up while intimate partner murders are often the end results of years of physical abuse. This is not always the case, and often people around the couple will be completely surprised when the relationship degenerates into murder, as was the case here. That's because emotional abuse is insidious and often well-hidden. Very often even the victim doesn't realise that what they're experiencing is emotional abuse until it's too late. In researching this case, I used the book Stellenbosch Murder Town by Julian Janssen, as well as several media articles so let's get into episode 140 the murder of Sharmelin davids the following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims if you feel you may be triggered by such material please consider this before accessing our content to access trauma counseling or services Please see the helpline information on our show notes. Charmelin Davids was born Charmelin Adams to her mom Rita. Her mom raised her and her brother Denver as a single mom and worked hard to support the family on her wages as a cleaner at a church in Dulsach, near Stellenbosch. Charmelin was born prematurely at seven months into her mom's pregnancy and doctors initially didn't hold out much hope for the infant. But she proved to be a fighter, and pulled through and was able to come home. But that would only be the beginning of her health woes as a child. Shyamalan contracted meningitis as a child, and although the illness would often be deadly for such a young child, and Charmelin was hospitalized for a long time, and even blind and paralysed temporarily at one point, the tenacious young girl pulled through. Unfortunately, Charmelin would struggle with ongoing health issues as a child, with asthma being a huge issue for her. As a teenager, she was working at a restaurant as a waitress when she'd had a severe asthma attack and had to be rushed to hospital. By the time the ambulance arrived there, she was no longer breathing and had to be resuscitated. Her asthma would plague her throughout her life, but she never really let it get her down. Her brother Denver says that Shyamalan was a fantastic cook and brilliant at needlework. She was also extremely generous and would do anything she could to help other people. Charmelin met the man she would eventually marry, Jerome Davids, when she was in matric. He was three years older than her and took her to her matric farewell. After that, both started working and Jerome and Charmelin continued dating and eventually moved in together. They married in 1999. Jerome did well in his career. He worked at Telcom as a technician for a few years before going to work for a food logistics company he had quite a few perks from that employer, including a company vehicle he was allowed to use. Shyamalan worked in the retail sector for most of her career and was running a Biltong kiosk at the local pick-and-pay in 2009. Shyamalan's brother would later say that his sister's marriage had become very tumultuous in 2008. She suspected that Jerome was cheating on her and although he denied it every time she confronted him, she eventually found proof on his phone and ended up contacting the woman that Jerome was seeing. The woman had told Charmelin that Jerome had told her that they were getting divorced and that Charmelin had moved out of the house. This was news to Charmelin, who up until that point had thought there was no issue in her marriage. She told the woman that this was not true and that they were very much married and not planning on getting divorced. Despite all of this evidence, Jerome continued to deny that he cheated on Charmelin. I think that anyone who's experienced this type of situation will agree that this classic gaslighting is almost the worst part. Charmelin knew she was right. She had irrefutable evidence. And yet... Jerome refused to admit it. He flat out denied it was true. That kind of thing will mess with your brain, make you think you're losing it. If it carries on long enough, you might actually convince yourself that you are wrong, because surely no one could lie straight-faced over and over like that. Oh, and this is also called emotionally abusive behavior. Undoubtedly, Jerome would also have been doing the same to the other woman. He would have told her that Charmelin was crazy and lying, and they were getting divorced and she had moved out. Charmelin's brother had been aware of his sister's suspicions about Jerome's infidelity. He'd warned his brother in law himself that if he hurt his sister, he was going to have him to deal with. Again, Jerome had denied it, even though Denver had been told by several neighbours that Jerome was seeing a woman from Somerset West. Jerome claimed that they were lying and out to get him. The tension between Charmelin and Jerome had continued, and on the 8th of May 2009, Denver had gone to their house to visit them to see if he could help sort out their issues. He found Jerome having locked himself in the bathroom, while Charmelin was extremely upset at having found more evidence that her husband had continued his affair. Denver sat with his sister for a little while that evening, and she told him that she and Jerome were going to work on their marriage, and that they would be getting counselling from the church. By the time Denver left that night, he said Charmelin seemed a little bit more hopeful. He could have no idea that this would be the last time he would see his sister alive. On Saturday, May the 9th, Charmelin wanted to do some grocery shopping. Jerome said he wanted to go to the Merriman Racing Club to check the balance he owed on his tab there. Charmelin asked if he'd drop her off at the Cheese Factory Shop in the Plankenburg Industrial Office Park. He did so and she said she would text him when she was finished so that he could collect her. About half an hour after he dropped her off, Shyamalan had finished her purchases at the factory shop and started walking up Stoffel-Smith Road. A passing motorist witnessed what happened next. A man ran up to Shyamalan with something covering his face, which the motorist initially thought was a balaclava, but later turned out to be a knee guard pulled over the man's face. The man was wearing a heavy jacket with a fur-lined hood, tracksuit pants, tackies and a black cap. He pulled a knife out of his pocket and began to stab Sharmalin, who shouted out. He stabbed her several times before she fell to the floor, bleeding profusely. The attacker then turned and ran down the road. The motorist pursued him, hoping to clip him with his car so he could tackle him down and restrain him until he could get police there. The man ran toward the Merriman Racing Club, and the motorist took his chance and swerved into the parking lot and touched the attacker with his car's bumper. Unfortunately, he was not knocked down; he just stumbled, righted himself, and then ran inside the club building the motorist parked outside the entrance. He'd been in the club, and he knew that there was only one way in and one way out, so he decided to call police, keep an eye on the club, and ensure that he didn't miss the attacker exiting. A few minutes later, the man did appear again, but he was dressed differently and almost immediately went back inside, clearly having spotted his pursuer still parked in the parking lot. Back at the scene of the crime, Charmelin was not doing well. She was losing a considerable amount of blood. Several passers by did stop to offer her assistance. Although Charmolin struggled to speak, she managed to give one of the women presents Jerome's cell phone number, and the woman called him and explained that someone had been stabbed and he needed to come to the scene. Jerome told the woman he was on his way two doctors who'd been passing by also stopped and at 18 minutes past noon, they realized that Charmelin was losing blood too quickly for her heart to keep up and they started heart massage. Now, I'll just break in here and say that I couldn't find any indication of whether an ambulance had been called by anyone and if so, who and when. There is a report of an ambulance being called much later by police, and although I would assume someone had phoned an ambulance, Charmelin was assisted by these two doctors for almost half an hour, with no sign of an ambulance arriving. Jerome arrived on the scene and dropped to his knees beside his wife. He then got up and said he was going to go home and drop off his company bucky. He mentioned to someone on the scene that he couldn't take her to the hospital in his bucky because his employer's rules around company vehicles were that they weren't allowed to transport non-employees in the vehicle. Now, I'll address this here, because I think we're all raising an eyebrow at this. I don't know about you, but if my spouse is bleeding to death on a pavement and there's no sign of an ambulance, following company car etiquette is going to be the last thing on my mind. Also, the mere fact that he was there in his company car meant that if that was indeed a rule, he had already breached it because he dropped his wife off at the cheese shop in it. But I digress. And Jerome left his dying wife on the pavement with a crowd of strangers around her and drove home. Sadly, despite the efforts by the bystanders, the doctor's presence declared Charmelin dead at 12.35. She had lost far too much blood, and there was absolutely nothing more that could be done for her. It would be another 25 minutes until a police officer arrived on the scene. At 1 pm, a constable from Stellenbosch police station arrived and summoned an ambulance, a photographer, and pathology services. The constable then discovered that there was a motorist who had chased down the attacker. Yes, the poor man was still parked outside the Merriman club, guarding the exit. The officer waited for his backup to arrive and then went to the club where he met the motorist. The man immediately told the officer that the attacker had really not seemed like he was a street criminal. He'd been very well-dressed and clean. The man accompanied the officer inside the club to see if he could identify the man but he couldn't find him. Upon searching the toilets they found one with the window wide open and clothing scattered on the floor. It seemed clear that the attacker had changed clothes in the cubicle and then escaped through the bathroom window which is why the witness hadn't seen him. The man identified the clothing laying on the floor as the items that the attacker had been wearing when he'd stabbed Sharma Lynn. This included a blue thermal jacket, black tracksuit pants, black and white tackies, a blue knee guard and yellow gloves. Inside the pockets of the jacket was a fruit knife covered in blood. The blade was engraved with the brand Richardson Sheffield Limited in the other pocket was a note written on an old lotto ticket which read, I want tick money now or you're dead. The officer gathered the evidence and the witness's details so that he could get a full statement from him. Then he returned to the scene where his colleagues and pathology services were collecting evidence and waiting to remove Shyamalan's body. By this time, Jerome had telephoned Charmelin's uncle and told him that she'd been stabbed. Her uncle arrived on the scene shortly afterwards and found that Jerome was not there. Jerome did arrive ten minutes later and ran to his wife's body, threw back the blanket she was covered with, kissed her face and covered her back up again. He then went to hug Charmelin's uncle and he noticed that Jerome had blood on him. He also noticed that Jerome was limping and his elbow was injured. The man didn't ask for an explanation as to how Jerome had been injured, but did take him to the doctor to have his injuries tended to. The detective who would be the investigating officer on this case, Detective Constable Stephen Adams, who you've heard me mention before on this podcast when cases take place in Stellenbosch, and is an excellent detective with a huge number of successfully solved cases to his name, arrived on the scene at one twenty-five pm When he noticed that there was no handbag on the scene, he was quickly told that the victim's husband had taken it when he went to drop off his company vehicle at home. The whole company vehicle story immediately stood out to Adams, who couldn't see the urgency of the man rushing to take the vehicle home When his wife was dying. Of course, this was only the very beginning of the investigation, and he certainly couldn't jump to any conclusions at that point. Denver was understandably completely shocked when he discovered that his sister had been murdered. He recalled that he was almost glad in that moment that his mother had passed away three years before, because he had no doubts that having to tell her that her daughter had been murdered would have completely broken the woman. The devastated man had been given very little information about what had happened to his sister, so he went to visit to Rome to find out more. Unfortunately, he found that his brother-in-law was in a severely sedated condition and he wasn't able to get much more out of him. After photographs of the scene had been taken and Charmelin's body had been removed, Adams returned to the police station and picked up two of his colleagues. He wanted to head over to Charmelin's house and speak to Jerome, and he preferred to have other officers with him. When they arrived, they found Jerome in the same condition that Denver had. They were able to retrieve Shyamalan's handbag and found her cell phone and purse inside with 300 rand in it. Adams immediately remarked, that this didn't look like a robbery to him. Jerome began to sob loudly. Adams then asked if he could see Jerome's cell phone. The woman who'd initially sat with Charmelin and phoned Jerome had moved on from the scene by the time police had arrived, so Adams wanted to get her cell phone number off Jerome's phone. Jerome handed him a Nokia and told him he could take it with him if he wanted to. Adams asked Jerome's family, who'd gathered around to support him in his time of need, to ensure that he didn't take any sedatives the next day, as he needed to take his statements. They agreed, and an arrangement was made for Jerome to go to the police station the next morning. Back at the police station, Adams started going through Jerome's phone. He immediately identified messages from a woman who was clearly not Shyamalan, but were very flirty and romantic in nature. He then also found photographs of Jerome and a woman on the phone as well. When one of Adam's colleagues looked at the pictures, he actually recognised the woman as someone who lived near to him in Somerset West. With infidelity on Jerome's part clearly on the cards, the officers felt it was more vital than ever to speak with him. The next day, as arranged, Jerome Davids was brought into the police station by his family. He was also accompanied by Denver, Sharmelin's brother, who hoped to be able to glean some more information about his sister's murder from the officers. The family members who accompanied Jerome immediately apologized to the officer and said that despite their promise to him, Jerome had managed to take a handful of sleeping tablets without their knowledge. He was clearly in no state to be interviewed, so Adams instructed them to take him to a doctor immediately to ensure that he hadn't overdosed. He asked Denver to stay behind. Adams asked Denver about Charmelin's marriage, and he relayed the information about his sister's suspicions that her husband had been cheating. Adams then brought out the items of clothing they'd found in the Merriman Racing Club bathroom. He laid each item out on the table one by one and asked Denver if he could identify these items as belonging to anyone he knew. Denver said that the tracksuit pants looked like a pair he'd seen Jerome wearing before, the knee guard he recognised as being similar to one Jerome had worn when he'd injured his knee in soccer. By the time Adams pulled out the black and white tackies, Denver began to shake. He squeezed his eyes shut and almost couldn't answer for a moment. He said that in 2007, his sister had bought him and Jerome identical pairs of shoes. Denver's own pair had been worn out and he'd thrown them out a while before, but he knew Jerome still had his because he'd used them a few weeks before when he went to a dance. Denver was starting to realise that there was a possibility that his brother-in-law may have had something to do with Charmelin's murder. When Adams produced the jacket, Denver said he'd seen people at Jerome's workplace wearing those jackets in the freezer rooms. The gloves were also similar to those that people used in the cold storage facility. By the time Adams was finished, Denver knew that Jerome was a serious suspect. Adams asked him not to approach Jerome about the crime, to keep his distance, and he assured him that he would try and close out the case as quickly as he could. Later that day, Adams interviewed one of the witnesses from the scene at his hotel and then drove through to Somerset West and interviewed the woman he believed Jerome had been having an affair with. The woman admitted that she had met Jerome on social media in 2008 and they chatted on Mixit. She hadn't initially realised he was married and when she found out, she'd told him that they could only be friends. Jerome had wooed her though and eventually began to tell her that he was divorcing his wife and that she'd moved out of the home. She said that in April 2009, Jerome had told her that he'd gone to see a divorce attorney to start proceedings. She also said that he had visited her the day before the murder, which may have been what had sparked the disagreement between Charmelin and Jerome that Denver had witnessed. Jerome had then phoned the woman at 1.36pm on Saturday to tell her that his wife had been murdered in a mugging. After leaving the woman's house, Adams went through to Jerome's place of work. He asked to see the jackets they used in the cold rooms, which were identical to the one found in the Merriman Club, and the gloves were identical too. Then he asked to see the knives they used. The supervisor produced a fruit knife with the words Richardson Sheffield Limited engraved on the blade. By the time Jerome Davids eventually walked into Adams' office, not under the influence of anything, the investigating officer already had a mountain of evidence against the man. Jerome was accompanied by his father and he asked if he could stay for the interview. Adams started out by asking Jerome where he'd been on the night before Charmelin was murdered. Initially, Jerome made up a story but he finally admitted that he'd been with his girlfriend and that he'd been cheating on his wife for a year. Then Adams pulled out the shoes and the knife and asked him if he recognised the items. Jerome's face fell, and quite suddenly he reached out and grabbed the knife and held it to his throat, threatening to kill himself. One of the other officers managed to wrestle the knife out of his hands and Jerome burst into tears and confessed to having killed Sharma Lynn. His father was completely stunned and had to be helped out of the office as his son was placed under arrest. Jerome Davids would be held in the Stellenbosch prison until his trial proceedings could begin, but with the swift arrest having occurred, there were still a few pieces of the puzzle to put together. On the Monday after her murder, Charmelin's autopsy was conducted. The pathologist found a stab wound of 22 millimeters deep below her clavicle, which had likely been the biggest contributor to her death. The wound had penetrated her lung and her heart. There was also a 10 millimeter deep stab wound to her left upper arm. Adams was also able to find a doctor who had treated Sharmilin for a major depressive episode which she had reported had been as a result of marital problems. Jerome Davids gave a full confession to his wife's murder in which he admitted that he had been having an affair and he had planned his wife's murder for at least two weeks. In detail, he explained how he had dropped Charmelin off and then gone to the Merriman Club where he'd parked his company Bucky. He had changed into the items he'd brought with him in the toilet and then when he got the message from Sharma Lynn to say she was finished and she was walking up the road toward the club, he walked out into the road, pulled the knee guard over his face, put the cap on and started out. He'd then come up behind her and she'd spun around to face him. He said he didn't know if she'd recognised him He'd wanted to stab her in the back and had become unsettled when she was facing him and she started to cry out for him to stop. He'd planned to plant the notes he'd written on her and steal her bag to make it look like a robbery, but he'd become afraid when he saw a passing car slow down and ran away instead. The limp he'd developed was from being hit by the car and the wound on his elbow was from squeezing out of the bathroom window. He claimed that he was very remorseful for killing his wife. Jerome's case was transferred to the High Court and he begged her family for forgiveness and asked to be allowed to attend her funeral. Understandably, her family refused. At the end of January 2010, Jerome was transferred to Polsmore Prisons to await his trial, which started on Friday the 5th of February 2010. Jerome entered into a plea agreement with the states and gave a guilty plea in exchange for a reduced sentence. Rather than a life sentence, which he undoubtedly would have received, the family agreed to a 25-year sentence. He was handed down his sentence on what would have been Charmelin's 37th birthday. Despite providing a full confession, there was still one thing that remained unanswered at least in any meaningful way. Of course, it's not entirely uncommon for people to kill their spouses rather than divorcing them when they're having extramarital affairs, but that is usually when there's also some financial element which makes divorce unattractive to the murderer. In some situations, it's simply a matter of culture in which the person feels they will be looked down upon if they divorce, but for the most part it has to do with not wanting to split finances or that the murderer may actually profit from their partner's death through a life policy or inheritance of some sort. In this case, though, there was none of that. The Davids were a working-class couple. There were no life policies in place, and a divorce likely wouldn't have resulted in a major financial loss to Jerome because Charmelin was working and likely wouldn't attract any spousal maintenance payments, and they didn't have any children or own any property together. Police did find quite a few expensive presents that Jerome's girlfriend had bought him, so it was possible that he'd seen that relationship as a financial boon for him that he didn't want to lose. But he would never confirm either way exactly why he didn't just divorce Sharmelan. Denver would tell author Julian Jansen several years later that in the months after his sister's murder, he'd been approached by a woman who'd worked at a local clothing store and told that his sister had put a pack of clothing on lay-by at the store, which she hadn't collected before her death. When Denver had collected the clothing, it turned out to be baby clothing as there was no one else in the family or in Charmelin's friends that they knew of that was pregnant at the time or had an infant, the family arrived at the conclusion that Charmelin herself had been pregnant, perhaps in the very early stages, and had not yet told her family. Now, if this is true, it would fit what we see with a lot of domestic violence murders, where the risk of a partner being murdered by an abusive person increases tremendously when they fall pregnant. This would also, quite sickeningly, give a greater motive for Jerome's actions, because Charmelin's pregnancy may have stalled a divorce and he would have been financially committed to the child. It is entirely possible that Charmelin was pregnant but I'm also pretty sure that this would have been picked up in the autopsy, so I don't know. Whether or not she was, I suspect that Jerome's real motive may have been even more superficial than money. Everyone in Jerome's life was completely shocked that he'd done this. Everyone described him as the nicest guy they'd ever met, the most friendly, the kindest, most everything, and maybe that is really what Jerome was trying to protect. Perhaps he didn't want to be seen as the bad guy when his infidelity came out and he initiated a divorce with Charmelin. Maybe for him it was all about image, and maybe he really thought that he could get away with killing his wife and no one would know it was him. Perhaps in his mind, it was all worth it to save face with his friends and family. Who knows what was going on in his head. Almost as soon as the jail doors clang close behind him, Jerome started writing letters, which, again, really seemed designed to boost his image. In one addressed to Charmelin's family, he wrote in December 2010, I have brought you much heartache, sorrow, and pain. I am very sorry about what I did. I made a mistake and feel remorse for what I did to Shyamalan Muffin. I evaded my responsibility, namely my marriage, and yielded to a temptation and transgressed. Now I find myself in this situation." Charmelin is the last person I wanted to hurt. For a moment I lost concentration and became entangled in an unenviable situation. Neither Satan nor Charmelin can be blamed for my circumstances or feelings of guilt. Denver, I have gravely offended you and your family and caused you much grief. End quote. The letter is undoubtedly self-serving. Casting a murder that he'd planned for two weeks as a mistake is just ridiculous. Him using her nickname is also disgusting. Speaking of names, I must mention that although I usually prefer to revert to maiden names when the victim has been murdered by their spouse, because I believe murderers do not deserve the honour of having these women bear their names, I only do this with the agreements of the victim's family, and I was not able to get in touch with Charmelin's family to confirm that they would support this, so I have not reverted to her maiden name here. Denver had said that they would be satisfied to accept the plea deal that had been put on the table because they felt Jerome serving 25 years would be a fair sentence. Unfortunately, that would not be what happened. Because he didn't receive a life sentence, at the halfway point through his 25-year sentence, the Departments of Correctional Services contacted Denver to advise him that the man was eligible for parole. The family entered into a victim-offender dialogue and they were told that they would be informed when Jerome's parole hearing date was set so that they could make representation. But that did not happen. Instead, in March 2023, Charmelin's family heard through the community grapevine that Jerome had been released on the 20th of February 2023. They were understandably irate and spoke with journalists from NetVac24, to express their anger at how they'd been treated by DCS, and the fact that they'd not been given the opportunity to represent Sharmelin at the parole hearing. The family did not receive any communication from DCS, but on the 8th of March, Jerome's family would get a shocking visit. Jerome had been living with his sister as part of his parole conditions, when, without notice two DCS officials arrived at their door and took Jerome Davids back into custody. Three weeks after his release, he was taken back to Drakenstein Prison without any explanation. His family would speak to journalists in July of this year and explain that they still had not been given any indication why he'd been taken back into custody or what the next steps would be the DCS spokesperson, told the media that the only reasons an offender would be taken back into custody was if they'd committed a crime or if they'd broken their parole conditions. According to Jerome's family, he had been guilty of neither, and they said that they'd eventually been told that Jerome's parole decision had been taken under review in light of Denver's statements and Jerome's parole would be looked at afresh to give the victim's family an opportunity to make representation. I've honestly never heard of that happening before, and I know of many, many families who have not been included in parole processes and those offenders were never taken back into custody. But I guess you never know. Either way, it appears that Jerome Davids is back behind bars and he will be assigned a new parole hearing date. This is really one of the oddest intimate partner murders I think I've covered on this podcast, but I think it's perhaps also one we can learn the most from. I think I see it as strange because there didn't seem to be any obvious build-up or clear benefits for the perpetrator, but perhaps therein lies the point. That is how dangerous people can be. And of course we don't know what was happening behind closed doors, and the emotional abuse and blatant gaslighting was clearly bad, so there could have been more of a progression than appears on the surface. It just seems so random. Like Jerome just decided one day that murder was a viable option that it was somehow better than taking it on the chin and getting a divorce. I have to think that there are things we don't know. Perhaps about his own finances. Maybe he'd gambled himself into a lot of debt. But still, so random. We like warning signs. People ask me all the time in interviews, what are the warning signs? What can we look out for? How do we know someone close to us is dangerous? And of course, I answer was all the known things that we do know often come up with a progression to intimate partner violence. But then, there's Jerome. Jerome who was the nice guy. Who absolutely no one, including Charmelin, saw coming. Sharmilin Davids, rest gently. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. A healthier, happier, more productive life starts with good sleep. Make sure you invest in the right bed. Dialerbed stocks the best bed brands at the best prices. Shop at 76 stores nationwide or online.